Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today, whether you're a longtime member or a first-time listener. Calvary Baptist Church is located in the heart of Little Rock and exists to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you're tuning in during your morning commute or finding time to listen on a quiet evening at home, we hope our podcast provides a welcoming space for you to engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Today, we begin a brand new sermon series where Pastor Scott Jackson walks us through the Ten Commandments. Well, today we are back in Exodus chapter 20. And if uh, you remember, I gave an overview of Exodus chapter 20 a couple of weeks ago. And this is the chapter where we have the Ten Commandments given to us in Scripture and uh, I told you a couple of weeks ago that I, th- I feel that these are important enough for us to kind of slow down. You know, we've been going pretty fast, kind of chapter by chapter, pretty large sections of Scripture and narrative that we've been looking at week by week. But I want to slow down and uh, kind of dig into each one of these Ten Commandments because they really are a very, very important a part of the Bible. And so today, we're going to look at commandment number one, and I've uh, titled this God and God Alone. And this is the very first commandment that is actually comes in verse three, but let's, um, we're going to look at the first three verses kind of all together. But before we read the scripture, as I read this over and studied this a couple of weeks ago, and then again this week. Uh, as I read what comes before the commandments, and then I read the commandments, and then I read what came after the commandments, I couldn't help but think about my dad. And in particular, thinking about my dad's uh, parenting style. Now, my dad was a little bit old school, and part of what that means is that he really took the scriptures seriously where it says, spare the rod, spoil the child. And uh, only for my dad, it wasn't a rod, it was a belt. But same results. And, uh, and so my dad, uh, he also had a military background, and he also brought in his military principles and values into his parenting. And particularly in the military, there is a chain of command, and obedience to that chain of command is critical to everyone's success. And so he was clearly the commander-in-chief of our family, and I learned quickly that that principle was going to be applied in my upbringing. There was no doubt that my dad loved us unconditionally and totally, and that he would do absolutely anything he needed to do to take care of us to provide for us, to protect us. We knew that our dad was completely in our corner. And I'm talking about particularly my brother and I. Uh, He was on our side and by our side, as Taylor King might say, right? We knew that. And we knew he was going to be there for us at all costs. But we also knew that and learned early on that our choice to obey our dead was going to be a very major factor in whether or not we had happy childhoods. 
That's just how it was in our family. Well, it's interesting as we read through the scriptures, we see kind of the same thing with God's parenting style and its effect on the Israelites. My dad's parenting style was we knew he loved us, absolutely loved us. He had proven that over and over again. He was completely trustworthy. He loved us. But at the same time, we were a little bit afraid of my dad, and that motivated us to be obedient. As we read this story, we see some of the same things. Let's read what it says in Exodus 20, verse 1 through 3. It says, and God spoke all these words. And then verse 2 says, this is really the, the prelude or what some would call the preamble to the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And this is how he's setting up the Ten Commandments, reminding God's people of his faithfulness to them, of his trustworthiness, of how he was going to take care of them and provide for them. And we think about the story that we've been through. How did God live this out? He rescued Israel from the Egyptians, from Egyptian enslavement, 400 years of horrific bondage and slavery. God enters in and rescues them. And not only that, they saw him punish Pharaoh and the Egyptians with all of the the judgments with the plagues. We went through those. And then they saw God rescue them when the Egyptian army came after them at the Red Sea and very powerfully displayed his love for Israel and his judgment against Egypt at the Red Sea. And then in the rest of the journey, it says, as I brought you out of Egypt, we saw how he provided for them as they crossed those barren, rugged, harsh deserts and how God provided for them with water and food and protection, often miraculously. So God has proven that he loved them. He's proven that he would be there for them. He would provide for them, that he would protect them, that he was trustworthy. That's very, very clear in in verse 2. He's reminding them of that. In fact, he says in Exodus 19, he says, I carried you uh, on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. And that basically just says, I took care of you in order for you and and I to have this beautiful, special relationship. And that was very much kind of in line with how my dad treated us as his children. But if you get to the end of the Ten Commandments, you read something interesting, starting in verse 18 and following. It says, When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And so this is revealing that they understood this awe-inspiring God who could be a little terrifying. And they showed that they were very much afraid of their God. And part of the reason they were afraid is because God was speaking directly to them. And we talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, 
And one of the things that makes the Ten Commandments so unique is that God communicated them directly to the people with his own voice. That was special. That was unique. And then right after that, God, with his own finger, inscribed them into stone and gave the stone tablets to Moses. That, again, makes the Ten Commandments very unique. But when the people heard the voice of God, it was certainly both awe-inspiring, but also terrifying. And so we see that in these Ten Commandments. You know, when my dad gave instructions, part of his old-school parenting style is that he believed that his boys needed to contribute to the well-being of the family. And so most weekends, Saturdays, some Sunday afternoons, things like that, we had jobs that he would give us. And uh, he would tell us what to do. Sometimes, though, he would just tell my older brother, say, all right, Jeff, come in here. I want you to clean out the storage building, the shed. And here's what I want you to do. Take this stuff, organize it here, throw this away. Go get your brother, Scott. Take care of it now. That's always how it was. It was now. (laughs) And so my brother would come and relay the message. And I always believed my brother at least enough to go and do it. Uh, But I was never completely sure I was getting the full picture, really hearing exactly what my dad was wanting us to do, or not quite sure my brother was telling me the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's just part of having an older sibling, right? We never quite trusted them growing up. But I would go and do it, and it was usually, you know, true to some effect that I was supposed to be there and do that. But it was different when my dad talked to me directly or included me in on the instructions. Because one, I was physically in his presence and uh, it was very clear and I could get clarification of what he wanted me to do. Also, I, it was not just the message I was hearing, but I was hearing it from the messenger. I was seeing my dad's emotions and feelings and And I would walk away really understanding how important this assignment was and usually why there was a sense of urgency attached to it. It's just different when you hear something directly from an authority figure. And so this was the impact that we're seeing with the Ten Commandments. They knew this was different. And they knew it was important because God was speaking directly to them and uh, they knew there was a sense of urgency attached to it. And so that's just kind of the prelude to the Ten Commandments. So let's get to the Ten Commandments. Verse 3, we have the first commandment, and it says, You shall have no other gods before me. Now, before we dive into that commandment, all of the commandments, well, not all, but eight of the 10 actually start with you shall, and most of them start with you shall not. Now, interestingly, you shall is a verb phrase that is um, using the second person. And second person in English, you, can be either singular or plural. 
And the context helps us to understand whether it's being used in the singular or the plural. And in fact, verbally here in the South, we've kind of corrected that. We've kind of helped uh, people know what we're talking about because when we say you plural, we'll often say you all. And everybody knows, okay, he's talking to all of us, not just to me. But that's not really proper grammar. We just have to figure it out based on the context. Well, here, if you look at the context, you would think that God is communicating these 10 commandments to everyone, that he's addressing Israel in their entirety. But what's interesting is the Hebrew grammarians will tell us that this is second person singular for each and every single one of these commandments. What that means is that God was speaking. Remember, there's two million plus Israelites standing now in front of Mount Sinai while it's on fire. And he begins to speak to them. But what this is saying is that he wasn't speaking to them as a whole, all of Israel. And as he brings it into our world, if we bring it into our world, he's not just saying, all right, you Calvary shall have no other gods before me. He's saying, you Scott, you Lucas, you Kelly, he's going He's talking to each one of them individually, but he's doing it while they're all there together. And I think that's interesting. When my dad spoke to me specifically and individually and communicated with me, it had a much higher intensity and a greater impact upon me. And I think that's what we need to see as we look at these Ten Commandments. We need to see them as if God is speaking directly to each one of us. And then we, of course, know that collectively we're to live them out together. These are vitally important and very personal commandments. So what's the first one? What does it mean? You shall have no other gods before me. Well, we know in, in the Jewish faith that they were to be uniquely monotheistic. That meant that they were to believe in one God and serve one God and one God only, God alone. And you have to understand, and we do pick this up if you read the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, the worldview and the culture that they lived in was polytheistic. This was weird and strange for someone of the biblical era to think that there was only one God and that you worshiped only one God. That made them very, very unique. But that really is what was a, a huge linchpin of the Jewish faith and, of course, the Christian faith. There is only one God. Now, Paul makes it very, very clear that uh, all of this idolatry stuff, which was part of both the Old Testament world and the New Testament world that Paul lived in, if you look at 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, he helps us see monotheism very clearly. He says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols... 
We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. So essentially, Paul is explaining monotheism. He's saying we know that all of these other so-called gods are not real. Therefore, they are not gods at all. There's only one real God, and we know him. And therefore, we're called to serve him and him alone, to worship him and him alone. He is a jealous God, rightfully so. He is not going to share us with anyone or anything. And he demands that we worship him and him alone. Some relationships are just supposed to be that way. They're not supposed to be both and relationships. They're supposed to be either or relationships. For instance, marriage is that way. Could you imagine if I came home and I said, hey, Mona, honey, I love you so, so very much. And I really enjoy spending time with you. But I want you to know, I, I, I think you're very lovely, but I've also, I, I've found another woman that I also think is very, very lovely, and I really want to spend some time with her. But make no mistake about it, I'm going to spend more time with you than I'm going to spend with her. And, um, you know, I'll spend most of my nights with you, but I'll just spend a few nights with her. And in fact, you might actually become really good friends with her if you'll give this a chance. And I'm sure, of course, she would say, well, Scott, thank you for, for you know, still wanting to be with me and I, that I'm going to spend, you're going to spend more time. I really appreciate that. You know, I'm sure that's what she would say, right? <laughs> Well, if you know my wife, <laughs> she would say, oh, Scott, you've uh, obviously made a very bad mistake. Here's the door, and you are no more a part of my life. That's what Mona would say. And who of us would say, well, Mona, you're being unfair. You're being unreasonable. You're being intolerant. Who of us would do that? No, of course not. We understand that marriage is an exclusive relationship. It's not a both and, it's an either or. And so as it is in marriage, it is with God. He must be first he alone is God. There is no one else. It is an exclusive relationship. Well, as we think about this, some of you might be saying, well, pastor, don't have to worry about me on this one. We can check this one off. I've got this one. I am absolutely not a polytheist. Uh, I only believe in one God. And uh, don't have to worry. Don't have an Asherah pole outside my backyard. Not going to pagan temples. Not cooking up some food and taking it to a priest, a pagan priest. We're not doing any of that. You're, I'm okay. We can move on. Well, if we bring the principle from their world into our world, we could 
define idolatry as anything or anyone that takes God's rightful place in our lives. And if we define it that way, then there's some questions we really need to ask and quite and, and answer honestly. Questions like, is God truly my first love? I love in Revelation chapter 2, where it's talking to the seven churches. It, it goes through, and, and one of those churches was the church of Ephesus, and they were being told, you're doing lots of good things, but then it says, but you have forsaken your first love. In essence, they were breaking the first commandment. You've forsaken your first love. Is God truly your first love? We all say that God is important, but do we really live as if he is most important? Do we wake up thinking about him? Do we worship him every single day? Do we give him time? You know, what? when we say well, God is the passionate pursuit of my life, is that really true for you? What would your time say? What about your thought life? What would your checkbook say? If we just audited your checkbook, would it, would it be clear that God is first? in your life? Is God the passionate pursuit of your life or is it money or is it career or is it some kind of material thing or is it fun or entertainment or travel? Or is it someone else that's really the passion of your life, the passionate pursuit of your life? You know, we, we're blessed, Mona and I are at the grandparent stage. And we've got a little one-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, and she, of course, is the queen bee of the family. And it's not just us. It's the other set of grandparents, all of us, Lauren and Stephen and Caitlin. All of us love that little baby. And, um, you know, everything revolves around this little two-foot-high creature now in our family. But the worst thing that could happen to that little baby is that she thinks we love her more than anyone else. Can't be that way. We have to teach her that we love God first and most. And you must love God first and most. And actually, when we all, parents, grandparents, all of us love her after we love God, then we actually have a higher capacity to love her. Because when we love God first and most, and we worship him and him alone, then he empowers us through his spirit to love each other and to love my little grandbaby my granddaughter, the way she deserves to be loved. There's a higher capacity when we put God first and love him most. Now, we all know that kind of in our, our minds, but do we really live that way in our hearts? We have to. We can put no one or no thing 
in God's rightful place in our lives. And the truth is, this is, um, this is very foundational. Let me just read a few statements here about commandment number one. If there is only one God and our God is he, then he has every right to demand my sole allegiance and my passionate love and obedience. And I've undersigned line soul in that verse, uh, the first one, because it's the first one is actually S-O-L-E, soul allegiance, because he and he alone has to have that role. But then I put it again in a second. Everything's the same except the word has changed to soul, S-O-U-L. Because I must give my heart and my soul, my spiritual affections completely to the Lord, him and him alone. And based on that, I will obey him. The third statement is, if there is only one God and our God is he, then he, I must worship him and him alone. That's what it all comes down to. God refuses to share us, his treasured possessions, with anyone else or anything else. And that's what he's telling us in the first commandment. And the first commandment is really the most important commandment. Why would I say that? Because it's foundational. I grew up in the North Dallas area, and uh, in 2012, I was informed about another city that was fairly close to the city I grew up in. And uh, this city, Allen, Texas, had built a new football stadium for uh, its school district. And it was a $60 million football stadium. And uh, they played... 2020, the 2012 season and 2013 season in that stadium. And then everybody in the whole area was shocked to discover that in February of the next year, the stadium was condemned. And the reason it was condemned is because of faulty design and faulty construction. And it turns out that the foundation that they built the stadium upon was the problem. Now, my brother, who's now, uh, he was an, he's an engineer, but now he's spent most of his career in construction, works for a large construction company overseeing, it's really construction management's what he does. And his company actually built a lot of these school systems, schools, and stadiums. So I asked him, I said, uh, what happened? And he said, well, he said, you have to think of it this way. He said, when they make those foundations and all that concrete, it's like baking a cake. And if you bake a cake, you got the recipe and you got to put the right ingredients in it. And then you also have to have the right environment the right temperatures and the right moisture levels. And there's all these other factors. And he says, sometimes when you bake a cake, you might get all the recipe correct, but the environment's wrong and it falls, right? Some of you have experienced that. And he said, and sometimes you might miss, the environment might be right, but you miss a part of the recipe. You mess it up and it falls. That happens. What do you do when your cake falls? 
Well, you really have to start over. They didn't start over. And they built upon a faulty foundation. And in 2014, the stadium was condemned and uh, they had to bring in new contractors, new architects. And in fact, the old ones had to pay $10 million to fix the faulty foundation. And the point is this, if you mess up the foundation, nothing else is going to be correct. And for us spiritually, we need to understand that we've got to get the foundation right. And the foundation is very, very clear. You shall have no other gods before me. Love me first. Love me most. Let me be the passionate pursuit of your life. Worship me and only me. You know, Jesus said the same thing himself. He said, you can't serve two masters. You either love one and hate the other. Scripture also tells us Joshua challenged the people with the same issue. He said in his world, he was in the Canaanite culture, polytheistic. Baal was the chief god. And he challenged the people. He said, all right, if God's God, serve him. Worship him. If Baal's God, serve him. Worship him. But choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. We invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. and 11.15. And be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org, for more information about the church.